Doing all right? All right, I hope so. It's a good day. It's a good day. If you're new here, my name is Pastor Tim Gillespie. I'm the lead pastor here at Crosswalk Church in Redlands, and I'm the teaching pastor for our other campuses as well. And, um, you know, we have, so we, I just was thinking about this when Dave was speaking. Crosswalk Chattanooga is really just Crosswalk, but it's in Chattanooga. That makes sense, right? Because we've been going through and like doing signage and stuff for all our other, and they're like, we're here, we're here. And it's like, no, you, you're just Crosswalk. You just happen to be in Chattanooga. We're Crosswalk, and we happen to be in Redlands. We're not Crosswalk Redlands, but maybe we are. I don't know. This is a philosophical question that I was thinking about as I was walking up here. So welcome to my world. Um, it's not a safe place. Anyway, we are, we, we are in our, our last week of the Little Letters series, and we're studying 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. We're going to study 3rd John today. This letter, this epistle, is a, um, a postcard epistle just like 2nd John was. 2nd John was 245 words. 3rd John, I believe, is 290 words. It's 15 verses. We're going to go through every single one and think about um, what it is that we need to learn. This letter is different. It's different because 1st John was written to a church. 2nd John was written to a church. 3rd John was written to a person, a guy named Gaius. Um, And so we're going to start right there. Um, But before we do that, this is really a, it's really a lesson about different um, types of church members, if you want to know the truth. And someone said at one point that there are three kinds of people in this world. Those types, the, the type of person who makes things happen, the type of person who watches things happen, and then there's the type of person who asks, what happened? And the question is, what kind of person are you? Are you, especially in this congregation, right? Are you the kind of person who starts something and makes something happen and gets involved and gets engaged? Are you the kind of person who is more than happy to just watch and see what happens? Or are you the kind of person who's like, I don't know what's happening. I have no idea. Well, to that type of person, I will say this, get the app, it'll help, <laughs> right? We've been pushing that a little bit. But Third John is about three different types of people in the church. Again, it's a personal letter to a guy named Gaius. Now, the name Gaius was a pretty common name. So Gaius comes up in other parts of the New Testament. This, this Gaius is probably not connected to the Gaius that like Paul was speaking about and that sort of thing. But this, this little chapter, this little verse, this little book allows us to take a look at what the early church was really like. Now, when we talk about what the early church is really like, we have a tendency to go to Acts 2. And I'm just going to read it for you. Acts 2, 42 through 47. Could it, because it is this beautiful explanation of what church is. So let me read it to you. Right? What did the early church really look like? It said, all the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals and to prayer, even the Lord's Supper. A deep sense of awe came over them. And the apostles performed many miracles and signs and wonders. And all the believers met together and shared, um, met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and shared their meals with great joy and generosity. All the while, praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day, the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. Now, you've probably read this before, and this is that that beautiful look of the early church. And the only thing you can think of is, my church doesn't look like that at all, right? Well, we've been studying 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and what we've been realizing is that 
In 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, you're dealing with heresy, you're dealing with division, you're dealing with people trying to subvert the gospel and where things were going. Like, you, what you're realizing is that a mere 40, 50 years later, that church sounds a lot like church today, right? Because church is a difficult, it's not a difficult concept, right? The concept of church is great. Right? The problem with church isn't usually the idea of God, the idea of fellowship, the idea of worship or anything. The problem with church is that people show up to it and people are a mess. I don't know if you know this. And when I say people, I'm not talking in the general, I'm talking in the particular, you and me. People are just a hot mess. So when people show up together, they're going to get along. They're going to not get along. They're going to fight. They're going to, you know, praise together. They're going to eat together. Sometimes it's great. Sometimes it's a really hot mess. And you've already got a bit of a hot mess happening in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John in those churches that he was responsible for in Asia Minor. So this letter is going to talk to us about three men in, of 3rd John. And we're going to get to them as we go through this letter. So it begins like this. This letter is from John the Elder, much like he started the second book in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. He says, I'm writing to Gaius, my dear friend whom I love in the truth. So again, he's just saying the elder. He's not saying his credentials or anything. But um, what he's saying is, I'm writing to Gaius, who is my dear friend. And I wonder about this. How many people would you give this nomenclature to in your life? How many people would you say, this is a dear friend? We've got friends. We've got acquaintances. We've got people we walk past. We've got acquaintances that we know and we smile and wave and can't remember their names. We've got friends who we like. But how do you get somebody into the end zone of dear friend? What does that happen? How does that happen? Maybe it's because you went through something together and you're really bonded. And so you, so, so you have this connection with one another. Maybe it's because, you know, you went to high school together. And you've just been friends for so long. You've got this shared history that's really important. Maybe you just like the way that they make you feel when they're around you. So you call them a dear friend. Maybe a better question than do you know how, how many people would you give that nomenclature to? Maybe a better question is, are you a dear friend of someone? Is there somebody who thinks of you that way, who would write you a letter and who would say, dear friend, because of the things that you've shared and the time that you've had together? I think there's a way to be a dear friend, but I think, it's, I think, I think you've got to go through a little bit of a process. I, I think the first thing you do if you want to be a dear friend to someone is that you have to listen, right? Because great friends are great listeners. Dear friends are really good listeners. Of course, they talk too, but listening is really important because in the listening, you build trust. When you build trust with someone by listening, you build a sense of camaraderie, you build a sense of unity, you build a sense of compassion towards one another. And um, my mother always used to say, if you want to be a great conversationalist, don't say anything, just, you know, just listen. I was like, that doesn't make any sense. And then you've met that person where you're at the party and you're like, this person doesn't care about me at all. They're just talking about themselves right? We've all met that person. Don't be that person. Be the listener and build trust. And then once you built that trust, you have the opportunity to be honest because you're not going to call someone a dear friend if you can't be honest with them, truly honest. Through that trust, we can make sure that we are honest and that we find a closeness with those with whom we can be honest with and with whom will be honest with us. Because that's important too. The reciprocity of that honesty is really important if you're going to call someone dear friend. So in the second verse, he says it again. Dear friend, I hope all is well with you and that you are as healthy in body as you are strong in spirit. 
Now, this seems like just a really nice greeting, and it is, but it has been taken out of context by a lot of preachers in today's world, actually. This is one of the foundational texts of the idea of the prosperity gospel. And it's weird, you think, why he just says, I hope that you're as healthy in body as you are in strong in spirit. Other translations translate it that you may prosper. It uses that actual term, prosper, and people have... Um, have translated or interpreted it to mean that God wants you to be healthy, wealthy, and wise with an, with an emphasis of being wealthy. And this is one of the texts that they use in particular. Now, the New Living Translation doesn't really allow for that, as you can see. It just wants you to be healthy in body as you are strong in spirit. The reason why he's able to say that you're strong in spirit, he's about to explain. But it's basically, Gaius has a great reputation. Gaius has this reputation that they know who he is. In fact, this is where it comes from. In verse 3, some of the traveling teachers recently returned and made me very happy by telling me about your faithfulness and that you are living according to truth. So guys had this reputation, and it was a reputation that gave the elder, John, a sense of great joy. I could have no greater joy, in fact, he says, than to hear that my children are following in the truth. Why would this bring him joy? A couple reasons. Number one, proliferation of the gospel. Um, it means that the next generation is taking the gospel seriously and is doing the work to help the gospel continue to expand. This is what Gaius was doing. Second of all, um, it's just something heartwarming to a parent or a teacher or a pastor when somebody gets it and wants to, wants to engage in the work of the gospel in their life. And so he has this incredible joy. And what he knows is that walking in the truth, and it says following the truth, and some say living in the truth. Um, probably the better translation is walking in truth, and you heard that with some of the other translations. But what we've learned over 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John is that walking in the truth always leads to love, right? And that love comes from somewhere. But walking in truth always leads to greater love. So if you're wondering, hey, do I believe the right things about Jesus? Do I believe the right things about God? One of the ways to test yourself and whether or not you're walking in truth, if you will, is by seeing the fruits of your life and your ministry. Is there more love in the world because of how you believe in God and what you think about God and the way that you understand the love that God has given you? Is there more love in the world? Is the world a more gracious and loving and compassionate place? Is the fruits of your life expressed in the world through love? Then I can tell you it's pretty clear that you're walking in truth. Because there's a lot of theology, there's a lot of history, there's a lot of things out there that we need to know, but maybe the truth is very simple. Um, Karl Barth, who could be arguably called one of the greatest theologians of the 20th century, is a German theologian. He wrote, um, he wrote a book called, well, it's not a book, he wrote a series called Church Dogmatics that's over 10,000 pages of theology and history of the church. And um, toward the end of his life, he, he made a tour of the United States where he had the opportunity to speak at several of the nation's top universities. During a question and answer period, um, following one of his lectures, a student posed what seemed kind of an impossible question to answer. Dr. Barton, he said, you, you have written extensively on every aspect of theology and church history. I, I'm wondering if you could maybe sum it all up in a sentence or two, right? Uh, the room fell silent, as it does. Dr. Bart just stood there for a moment, carefully considering how to respond. Some of the professors and students who were there clearly began to feel awkward that such a trifling question could be asked of such a brilliant, brilliant scholar. Finally, Karl Bart, 
turned toward the student and succinctly replied, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Right? And all that work, he understood that we can sum it up in one simple thing. And this is how what we live, our li- the lives that we live is an expression of that one and simple truth. And I think we've learned that through 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John again and again, how much Jesus loves us and how much our command, the command that God gives us, which is from the beginning, as he said in, in book one and book two, is that we are to love one another as well. So third time he uses the term dear friend. He says, listen, dear friend, you are being faithful to God when you care for the traveling teachers who pass through, even though they're strangers to you. Right? Guys wants to help in the work of the gospel, taking care of those who are preaching the gospel and living off the hospitality of the local church. Right? Gaius is supporting his local church ministry as well as supporting kind of the global work that the teachers are doing as they're going around. Now, um, one of the things about the early, early church is that while there were preachers and apostles and that sort of thing, the vast majority of the work was actually carried on by the people um, that were not necessarily professional ministers, and we'll get to that in just a moment. But, um, but Gaius' reputation of taking care of these people who were a little more formal was pretty important. It says, they have told the church here of your loving friendship. Please continue providing for such teachers in a manner that pleases God. They knew... What John is saying is that where you worship is a great place to come and preach because you're well taken care of. Some of us who travel around the world sometimes to go preach the gospel know that there are good places to preach and there are not so great places to preach. In fact, if you do music, you know the same thing, right? There's places where you want to go because they're going to treat you so well and they're going to take care of you. This is why I go to Australia all the time right? Australians are, they're so warm. They're so welcoming. They're so much fun to be around. I like you people too, but Australia is really fun, right? And I'm a little bit of a novelty there because I get an accent when I go down there. So it's really fun. I like, I love preaching there. There's certain places you love preaching. I went to Norway one time to preach and you know, people say like the Scandinavians are kind of standoffish. That was not our experience at all. They called us up and this never happens as an Adventist pastor. They called, we said, and said, Hey, We'd like you to come preach for a camp meeting. It's in the middle of Norway at this lake that I looked up and the name of the lake was Goblin Lake, which was a little nerve wracking. I'm not going to lie. And they said, would you come? And I was like, oh yeah, that sounds really great. How long is it? It's a 10 day camp meeting. I'm like 10 days. It's a long time to be away from family. And they're like, of course your family will come. I was like, of course. That never happens in the Adventist church. They never bring your whole family. It's like $10,000 worth of tickets to bring all five of us to Norway for 10 days. It's so much fun. We loved it. I used, to, I used to preach at this Nazarene church on Sundays called um, Pasadena Nazarene. And I used to preach to one of their groups there. Just a phenomenal group of people. They'd give me breakfast. They thought it was so wonderful. And in fact, they knew I was Adventist. And so like I'd go through the buffet. And when we get to the bacon, they'd always be like, we're sorry. I'm like, it's, it's fine. And they're like, we know you don't like this, but our people like it. So we're going to eat it. I'm like, well, it smells quite good. Um, but anyway, just, just there's, it, there's certain places that are fun to preach. And Gaius had made this place really fun to preach. The itinerant preachers loved going there. And John says, listen, they're traveling for the Lord. And they accept nothing from people who are not believers. They depend on the goodness and the giving of the local church. They were living in faith on the hospitality that would come from the local church. That's how it used to be. This is why it's, it's so important 
when we give that we're serving not just here, but we're serving those who come through our, our, our ranks, you know, and have an opportunity to, to meet with us and grow. The way that you give supports that ministry. And that's how ministry's always been, right? The, the churches grow and churches shrink. Churches thrive and churches barely survive on the backs of the, the incredible hospitality and giving nature of their congregations. So I just want to affirm you and thank you that you've always been an incredibly giving congregation, not just to us, but like when Chattanooga was trying to buy a building, we had people from this campus that were giving over there. We've got people from that campus that are giving here now. It's pretty incredible. And, and this is the way the gospel grew early on from, first of all, from some formal preachers and apostles, but also, um, in fact, Michael Green in his book, Evangelism in the Early Church, says really the way it happened was in reality accomplished by means of informal missionaries that would go to each other's places in town, right? It was, it was lay people, Christian lay people, not trained preachers, not just evangelists, although there were some of those, that carried the mission of the church, not through formal preaching, but informal conversation in homes and in wine shops, on walks and around marketplaces, they did it naturally, enthusiastically. Having found treasure, they meant to share it with others, even to the limit of their ability. So it's incredible the way that the early church, especially in this new network of churches that was being set up in Asia Minor that John was working on, that Paul had worked on, you've got these groups of people that kind of know each other and are kind of working together and sharing with one another. It's pretty incredible. And John says, listen, we, we ourselves should support them so that they can be partners, so that we can be partners as they teach the truth. Every time you give, you're partnering with um, a ministry that's trying to expand the gospel. So thank you for that. Now, this has been a great letter so far. And if you're guys, you're actually probably feeling pretty good about yourself, right? He said some really great things about you. He said some good things about your church. He's saying, you know, these itinerant preachers love preaching there. This is pretty awesome. This is pretty wonderful. Um, and then John's tone changes a little bit in verse 9 because he's got to actually deal with a little bit of church business, but he wants to be careful. So he says this, I wrote to the church about this, but Diotrephes, who loves to be a leader, refuses to have anything to do with us. Now, this sounds like a pivot, and it sounds like he's just kind of giving him some information, but I think we need to think about tone of this letter, right? He wrote, and he says, listen, Diotrephes, who loves to be a leader... I don't think it's as positive as it sounds at first blush. When someone does this, you know they're trying to make a statement about something, right? When he says he loves to be a leader, now you get a little bit of head wave on it. He loves to be a leader. All of a sudden, it means something very different, doesn't it? And this is the way it seems to be. He's saying, listen, Diotrephes, who loves to be a leader, as a pastor, you find out that when somebody first comes to your church and they just get there and they immediately want to be in leadership, like you, you have to question their motives a little bit. And maybe that's bad, but some people really like, to, some people love to be a leader, right? And it's not necessarily a healthy thing. Apparently, that was Diotrephes. I love it when someone says, listen, I've come to the church for a few years. We're really embedded. We love what's going on. I wonder if I could help in any way, shape, or form. These are my giftedness. That's a wonderful conversation. And that's somebody who wants to be a help. The person who shows up and says, I think I can lead everything and wants to be a leader, we watch out for those people, just so you know. But he says, listen, he, wants, he loves to be a leader. Uh, he's got some issues. And by the way, he refuses to have anything to do with us. 
Now, this is a problem in the early church because these are, these are young, fledgling con- congregations. They're not as young as you think, right? They've been around for 20, some 20, 30 years at this point, but that's still relatively young. They're still figuring out what Christianity was. I mean, John the apostle, the last one, is the one who's writing. They're still trying to figure out their systems, right? And he's not listening to the fellowship of churches at all. He's saying he doesn't want anything to do with us. So he's insubordinate. He wasn't willing to work with the program that they were trying to set up. He wasn't willing to receive those teachers. Therefore, he was really thwarting the work of God through that particular church. And and then John says, listen, when I come, I'll report some of the things he is doing and the evil accusations he's making against us. So John is really being careful not to be slanderous, but Diotrephes is slandering John. He's slandering the other churches. The elder wasn't going to spread rumors. He was going to confront the issue face to face. But then he says, not only does he refuse to welcome the traveling teachers, he tells other people not to help them. So it's not just him being insubordinate. He's making other people insubordinate to the mission of God that is set up in the church, right? He tells others not to help him. And then when they do help, he puts them out of the church. It's just getting worse and worse. I don't know who Diotrephes was. And I don't know how somebody who seemed to be that abusive had so much power in the church. But that's a pretty common narrative that we see even in today's churches. One or two people have an overwhelming amount of power and they have a tendency to abuse that power because that's what we're seeing here. Diotrephes puts them out of the church. This is abuse of spiritual power. And I want to just recognize something today. There's many people sitting in this congregation that have been, have been the recipient of spiritual abuse through church. And I'm really sorry for that. That's not the way it's supposed to be. And if you've been a victim of that, you are so incredibly gracious to keep trying, to keep coming to church hoping that that's not going to happen. And I really hope it doesn't happen here. We're going to do everything we can to make sure that there are checks and balances so no one has that kind of power to abuse someone. But Diotrephes is abusing people. He's abusing the mission of the church, and then he's actually abusing the people by kicking them out of church. Diotrephes is not a good dude. And for some reason, no matter how good Gaius was, Gaius seemed to be looking towards someone, at least the assumption that we can make, I think, is a fair assumption that John is writing, because he says this, he says, listen, dear friend, again, the fourth time he uses it, don't let this bad example influence you. He knows that there's still such a thing as peer pressure. Do you remember growing up being like 11, 12, and 13 and being warned so many times about peer pressure? Like everyone was like, hey, don't succumb to peer pressure. If all your friends are jumping off a bridge, are you going to do it? I was always like, well, it depends on what they were jumping into, right? Maybe it's fun. Maybe we're at Lake Havasu and we're jumping off the bridge. I don't know. But you hear a lot about peer pressure when you're young. Do you know that goes away after you get out of college? Like nobody's like, be careful about those 29-year-olds and the peer pressure they're going to create in your job. Like nobody says that anymore. But like what does adult peer pressure look like? What does peer pressure look like for adults? We still have it and we still have it in the church. And apparently, apparently Gaius was, was... I don't know if it's easily influenced or he, he was open to following the lead. 
right? And, and I'm just jumping back real quick. This is why he says, dear friend, don't let this be, don't let this bad example influence you. Follow only what is good. Remember that those who do good prove that they are God's children and those who do evil prove that they do not know God. And so maybe even a more specific question of what does, rather than what does peer pressure look like for adults, what does peer pressure look like in church where it can be unhealthy? Because apparently some of this was going on because Diotrephes was kind of ruling with an iron fist, was kicking people out of the church. And, he, and John's saying, listen, this is a bad situation. I think there's something that we should note here too. Nowhere in this letter, in these 15 verses, do we see John saying, I'm coming to kick Diotrephes out of the church. What he's saying is that's a bad example. Don't follow that example. I'm coming and we're going to deal with this. I think the implication there might be that church is full of people that often don't agree and we have to learn how to figure that out. We have to learn how to be in community with each other even when we don't always agree. Even when somebody is taking a little more than they should. We need to have a conversation. And he seems to say, Mika, I'm gonna have a conversation and it's gonna be face to face and we're gonna work some of this out. Now, some of, that's, some of that's me implying some stuff so I wanna be careful that I don't imply too much. But nowhere does it say he's gonna kick diatrophies out. So we gotta figure out how to work together even when things aren't necessarily great. But then he says this, and this is all we know about this guy. He goes, but everyone speaks highly of Demetrius. We're like, who is Demetrius? This is a new guy. You just introduced a whole new person into this. And you're giving us one verse. We get one verse of Demetrius, and that's the guy we should follow. Everyone speaks highly of Demetrius, as does the truth itself. In other words, there's, there's confirmation of that reputation. We ourselves can say the same for him. Like, we know him. And he's that good. And you know that we speak the truth, right? There's this guy. His name is Demetrius. You probably know him. If you know Diotrephes, you probably know Demetrius. Stop listening to Diotrephes. Listen to Demetrius. Copy this dude. We don't know anything about Demetrius. All we know is that John thought he was a great guy. And John, what we do know is that John was really connected to his churches. He knew the people in them. And then he says, listen, I have so much, I have, I have much more to say to you. But, and this kind of echoes what we saw in, um, in 2 John. I, I don't want to write it with pen and ink. I want to meet face to face for I hope soon to be with you. And then we'll talk face to face. And then John says this cool thing at the end. He goes, listen, peace be with you. Your friends here send their greetings. Please give my personal greetings to each of our friends there. This is the fellowship of believers around Asia Minor. It's a small community. If you grew up Adventist, you've had this conversation. Where are you from? Where'd you go to school? AUC, PUC, LSU, CUC. Like we go through the list, where do you go? Did you know so-and-so? Right? We live in a world of eight billion people, but because our community is so small, we can actually have that conversation and chances are you go, yeah, no, I know him. And you're like, oh. That's my cousin. Like, that's my cousin too. You find out you're related to people you didn't even know. Like, we don't have six degrees of separation. We don't have Kevin Bacon degrees of separation. We have one degree of separation, right? Because our communities are small. Asia Minor was the same way. This is why John is saying, hey, all of us here, we love you guys over there. We're praying for you guys. Say hello to everybody over there. We love you guys. We can't wait to do Pollock together, right? This is how I feel when I get to go out to Chattanooga. I'm like, hey, Redlands is praying for you guys. We're really excited because everybody knows everybody. 
right? And sometimes that gets a little much, I understand. But by and large, it's a beautiful thing. This idea that we can love one another in the same mission, in unity, going in the same direction, you know, thwarting the peer pressure that we might feel sometimes. Because we all understand one simple thing, and it's that Jesus loves us. It's that Jesus loves us so completely, so overwhelmingly, that like he said in, in, in 1 John, like God's not going to love you anymore when you get to heaven because he loves you so much now. And how he, he admonishes us in 1 John and 2 John to just do the commandment that you learned from the very beginning, which is to love one another like you've been loved. Just love. The elemental aspects of John's faith was simply love. And so when we get together as a community of believers, we have to remember to love. Now, the bumper for this video is beautiful, right? It's shot in this little chapel up in Redlands. And it's a church that probably looks a lot more like a church you grew up in than the church you're sitting in right now with, you know, stained glass windows. And there's always that beautiful four o'clock hour where the sun shines through those windows and the whole church feels like it's gold. And we had them sing this song, Jesus Loves Me, because we feel like that's the elemental message of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. So we thought we'd sing it for you today. <laughs> 